Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you again. Part of the blessing of this series has been I've, Marina and I have been able to be at you a lot more often. And um, it's been wonderful to see new faces, see regular faces. And um, it's exciting to see what God's doing out here. And um, it's my privilege this morning to wrap up, can you believe it, seven weeks of the series on tough questions where we've been looking at uh, some of the most difficult questions that have been leveled against Christians. And uh, I'm going to move over a little bit to this side so we can all see. But um, I hope that uh, over these last seven weeks, there's been two things that have been accomplished to some degree in your life. The first is the purpose of this series is to make believers into thinkers. And for me personally, I've been amazed at how much the research and the uh, investigation of our faith has produced such a sense of deep confidence in what I believe as a Christian. And that in actual fact, so much of uh, this world provides evidence for what we hold to. We're not silly people. We have a God that has spoken in creation and has shown himself in many ways. And for me, I'm even more confident than I was seven weeks ago in the validity of the Christian faith. But the second is we want to help thinkers become believers. And I'm hoping that over the last seven weeks as you've engaged with this series, that it's been helpful for you to answer some of the questions that have perhaps caused you to think Christianity is not valid. Um, But really today, today is the most important question of all. And you'll notice my tone is a lot more urgent, a lot more serious, because essentially this question that we're dealing with today of why should I believe heaven and hell exist is the reason why we've done these seven weeks. And as a believer, everything I do is shaped by this reality, is that there is life after death. And part of the church's role in society is to make sure the world is warned of it and ready for it. And so this morning, I want to uh, let you know you will be a bit uncomfortable because what I'm going to talk about this morning is something we don't like to think about. And in actual fact, everything in this world wants to draw our attention away from. And it's this thing called death. And I want to say to you as a pastor, in my short time, I have noticed how woefully prepared we are for this thing called death. And so often, on our deathbeds, what we thought was so important in this world counts for nothing. And can I say to you this morning, this is the most important question of your life. And some of us are closer to a natural death than others. But let me tell you, it doesn't matter whether you are 13 year old, 13 year old or whether you're an 80 year old, death can come at an unexpected time. And my job this morning is to point your attention to what really matters, is are you ready for it? Because, my friends, today I want to show you that our faith as Christian people is not a faith for this world only. In actual fact, if your belief of the Christian faith is that it's a little parachute that I pull out when I'm in trouble, or when I'm feeling a little bit down, I've got a little little bit of a pep talk from Scripture, I want to tell you your Christian faith is not for this life. It is training you for the next. And if you do not understand this call of eternity on your life, oh, my friend, the Christian faith will be so boring. It will be something that you only dabble in when the entire call of your life is to be ready for the moment you stand before God. 
And everything we do in this life, no matter what it is, whatever decision we make, whatever action we, we have, it is to be prepared for this time when we will give an account for the deeds that we've done in the flesh. And so the first point I want to make this morning is this, is you are not ready to live until you are ready to die. That is what the Christian faith tells us. You are not ready to live until you are ready to die. My friend, are you ready to die today? Because Paul says, and rightly so, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are above all, or, or, or we are of all people most to be pitied. Our faith does not make sense without an eternity. And the most famous Bible verse of all, John 3.16, says clearly, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The very essence, this gospel in a nutshell says there is more to this life. And what Jesus had to come and do is he came to give us life, not for this life only, but eternal life. He had to come and conquer death. That was his job. His crucifixion, that brutal crucifixion on the cross, is what, a picture of what is there for us. This thing called death, separation from God eternally. Not just us breathing our, la our last in this body, but our soul going into eternal separation from God. That's what Jesus came to conquer. The second most powerful thing in the universe called death. Now, in my talking about this this morning, I recognize that there are some objections. The first is this. Is Matthew, how can you be so sure there is such a thing as an afterlife? That's so important. Is how can you be so sure there is a thing called the afterlife? And what I'm talking about now is something very difficult because we are talking about something immaterial. The soul cannot be seen, it cannot be touched, cannot be weighed, but yet it is there. And our soul gets transported to a place that is unseen on our deathbed. And the second is this as well, if there is such a thing as an afterlife, which I'm going to show us today, is how can a loving God, how can a loving God send people to a place called hell? If heaven and hell exist, as I'm going to try and show you today, it certainly does. How can a loving God send people there? Well, I want to start off by looking at some evidences. They are imperfect, but they point to an afterlife. They don't tell us the details of it, but they certainly point to us a reality of life after death, and here it comes. The first evidence is this, is if you look at time and space across history, at civilizations and cultures, no matter what the time, no matter what the era is, you will see that in humanity, there is this instinctive belief that there is an afterlife. Can I tell you, the atheist might be you today. You had to be reasoned out of your instinctive awareness that there is such a thing as the afterlife. And every religion, however imperfect it has been, has been this obsession and awareness that there is something more than death. To be human is to know that this life instinctively is not all there is. And it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he has put eternity, this is God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What is, what is this writer to Ecclesiastes saying? He's saying to be human is to have this instinctive awareness that we were made by something eternal and divine. And because we were made for him, this world is not our final reality. And so we have this understanding that we were made for something more than what we can see, taste, and touch. 
The second is this, is near-death experiences. And, and, and if you talk to pastors who have to visit people's deathbeds often, I've had some amazing stories about how um, some of my colleagues who are more experienced than myself and in my own experience of what people see as they are transitioning into the afterlife. And they see bright lights and angelic visitations, visions of Jesus. I won't go into all the details now, but even my mom, when her mom passed away, there was evidence of her soul leaving her body and returning. There was evidence of life after death. And I tell you now, it has been interesting to see how people engage with the afterlife as they are leaving the flesh. Now you might say, well, they could just be delirious, they could just be sick, but actually scholars who are called uh, J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas says, from the kind of scientific and psychological testing that has been done, we see that we can place greater confidence in the evidential value of near-death experiences. These experiences cannot be ignored or slightly regarded. They play an important role in establishing support for life after death. I had some weird experiences in my hospital visitations as a pharmacy student of people as they were passing into uh, the next life having some amazing encounters. But let's move on. This third evidence is a sense of being made for another home. And this is so true. Let me unpack this a moment. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now let me explain to you how this works. For the Christian, we are told by the Apostle Peter, he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The Christian confirms what C.S. Lewis says. Is we are foreigners in this world. We're exiles. We have a sense that this world is not our home. And I want to unpack it to you like this. You know, the older you get, the grumpier you get. Not so. My dad's lying. <laughs> Don't you notice, uh, forgive us, Ridges, you are perfect examples of this, but as I'm getting older, you get more cynical and you get grumpier, not so? Yes. And for someone like Olivia who's going to grow up, they go, why are these old people so grumpy? Why are they? Man, life's exciting. There's so much to be seen and experienced and tasted, not so? But the older you get, the more cynical you become. Isn't that true? Because what you begin to realize is this life that was so promising, that sexy girlfriend that you thought you were going to marry and was going to be the perfect life partner for the rest of your life, let me tell you, every time you look to a human being and you think that they're never going to disappoint you, they do not so. Let me tell you, I'm the same for my wife and so are you. You think, oh, well, my career, yes, it's going to be the perfect thing. I'm going to get, and, and high schoolers are like this. Maybe young adults are like this. You think, oh, the world is so full of promise. Give it 20, 30, 40 years. What are you left with? Cynicism. Not so, my friends. Human beings are all liars. Women, all men are the same. I hear you say it all the time. <laughs> Not so? And the writer to the Ecclesiastes says this is the growing attitude for every human being. Let me tell you, my friend, if you have not come to this place yet, it is coming fast, where your final verdict on life, if you're looking for life in this world only, is everything is utterly meaningless. 
Anybody said that? You wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you go to bed, you brush your teeth, you do it for 60, 30, 70, 80 years, however long God gives you, and you go, what is the point of all of this? And some of us go, well, we'll look for pleasure. Look for pleasure. This is the story of Ecclesiastes. What you find is you give yourself to whatever you want, and you find it breaks your health. Breaks your relationship. What are you left with? STDs. You're left with addictions. You're left with all sorts of things that you, you're left with having to pick up the pieces of a life smashed by pleasure. Or how about this? You think, well, pleasure is not such a good idea. Let me do wisdom. And what we do, we study all the books. We want to find the meaning to life. And let me tell you what Ecclesiastes says is the more you know, the more you ache. Not so. How many of us don't want to listen to the news anymore? Because the more you read, the more you realize what humanity's life in this world is like, you can't face it. The more you realize, if you study psychology, it's the most depressing thing possible. What you will find about philosophy and psychology is no one understands themselves, and actually everything is meaningless. You know what the fascinating thing about philosophy is? This? They say, Plato discovered it all. All philosophy is a footnote of Plato. And in the end, Bertrand Russell, the greatest philosopher of the previous century, in his historical analysis of everything that philosophy could produce, do you know what he said? Is we actually don't understand anything. Life without the afterlife is meaningless. And my friend, it is coming up. And if that is you today, if you already reached this point, this message is for you. Well, what's the fourth evidence for life after death? Is this instinctive, universal aspect to humanity where we go, we want justice. Anybody ever felt like, like that before? Yeah? You want justice! Forget the fact that we commit acts of injustice regularly. But that's not the point. Is we want a better world with a better place. There's righteousness and goodness. Not so. Something we know instinctively is not right about this world. Can you relate to that this morning? When that boss treats you unfairly and the CCMA does not come to your rescue. Or maybe a little bit closer to home, the pain of a divorce where your, your partner takes you to the cleaners. Or maybe there is a sense in your life where there was some abuse that happened to you and that guy or that lady that did it to you never comes to justice. Friends, today, often the accusation pointed at God is how can a loving God permit all this destructive behavior? Don't worry about the banging, it's just a little kid. Have you ever asked that question? How can a loving God permit these evil acts to persist in the world? pedophiles, child rape, genocide. You want to go sort that out, Joe? Thank you. How can these things persist? Can I say to you today, God is going to deal with them. It's called Judgment Day. And he's taking his time, and there's going to be a moment when he's going to meet our justice. And let me tell you, that image of God in us of wanting justice is going to be sorted out on that day. Well, this, the fifth evidence is, do you know that having an understanding of the afterlife improves this quality or the quality of this life? And I really believe this. But I'm not the only one. This is scientific evidence. Is Harold Koenig, who is the Duke University professor for behavioral studies and psychiatry, he says this, with all the massive data that's produced, people who believe in life after death are not only healthier than their counterparts, but also less likely to suffer from stress and depression, less likely to attempt suicide, less vulnerable to a host of other ailments, and more likely to live longer. Isn't that fascinating? No, it's not finished yet. The best-selling author, 
Dinesh D'Souza of Life After Death, The Evidence, he says none of this is particularly surprising when you consider the nature of belief. The prospect of an afterlife provides a motive, listen to this, for morality and generosity because it is linked to cosmic justice. These data show that there are immense practical benefits to belief. You are likely to live longer and healthier, be happier in your marriage, and also make a greater contribution to your fellow man. Now, I would say the last evidence is the greatest of all. And this is the surest. It is the witness of Jesus Christ himself. Now, you might be surprised by this. When I say this is the most compelling evidence of all, well, let me tell you, there's no other person in history who has the credentials to speak on the afterlife. If you'll give me a moment, I'll explain it to you like this. This man, who we proclaim as the Son of God, came at the exact moment to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, performed miraculous signs that his enemies could not point out or disregard or disrepute, lived a sinless life that his enemies could not point out any fault in, in his trials, loved supremely in offering his life up on a cross for the world. But this is the greatest of all, and it is a historical fact. This man rose again from the dead. It is historical fact, my friend. Investigate it for yourself. This man, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. And who better to speak about the afterlife than the man who came back from it? Not so? Who better to speak about the afterlife than Jesus Christ, who confirmed his deity and his supreme anointed messiahship in fulfilling all of what Scripture pointed to and conquering even death by coming back from the dead? And he taught some very, very important things about the afterlife. And I might, you might say to me, well, Matthew, I don't believe he is the Messiah. I say to you, what will you do with his resurrection? You know, the people who sit in their armchairs and scoff at Jesus Christ, and their default position is this guy could never have risen from the dead. They never, ever come to faith. It's the people who go and investigate, like Lee Strobel's 30 journalist who was atheist. They go study the facts, the accounts of Josephus, the accounts of the historical worship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the 500 people that could say, this man came back from the dead, that the scriptures, you might not believe they inspire, but my friends, this, these scriptures are the most historically accurate documents the world has ever seen. They point to this resurrected Jesus who came back from the dead. I ask you, what will you do with him? And this man has the credentials to teach on the afterlife because he himself came back from it. And may I point out to you this morning what he said. He is crystal clear that there is such a thing as heaven and hell in his teaching. And he says in John chapter 14, verse 2 to 3, In my Father's house so many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's not done yet. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the last one is Matthew 13, verse 41 to 43. Listen to this. The Son of Man will send his angels 
And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is blatant. Well, we said... The first objection, is there an afterlife? Yes. How do we know? Well, those are the evidences for it. The second objection is, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? Anyone ever asked that question? Been asked that question? Well, there's an excellent section in Mark Mittelberg's book, Questions That Christians Hope No One Will Ask. But I want to point out today, gently, that this is a reality that we need to deal with as the church because it creates a bit of a dilemma. We as the church proclaim a God of love, not so? We do. And you heard Joey preach many times that when Jesus came, he proclaimed a God of compassion and mercy. Ah, but the same Jesus also preached on hell quite a lot. And People have tried to reconcile these two things, and I thought I'll just mention it. I don't think any of you have ever mentioned it to me. But there's the first kind of question around this point of what Jesus or God sending people to hell. How can he do that if he's loving? Is Well, maybe hell is vacant. Maybe if God is love, he did create hell, but he's going to be merciful and, and not send anybody to hell. It's just going to be like an empty hotel, although a hotel is a bit of a bad word. An empty, empty jail. That's a better word, huh? Well... I can sympathize if you've ever thought that. It's because you're trying to reconcile this loving God and Jesus who preached on hell. And the way to try and reconcile it is to say, well, actually, no one's going to be there, though God created it and taught it. Well, that doesn't really make any sense because, firstly, we know that Jesus clearly taught that many people would end up in hell. He did. And he, he would never have warned of the reality of judgment if nobody was going there. Not so? You understand that? I hope your, your stomach still there, is still coping. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, sorry, verse 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are And Mark Mittelberg says it's easier to actually make the case that we all deserve hell rather than heaven. <laughs> when you look at this God who is perfect and judges sin perfectly, when you look at this God who gives second chance, third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance, sixth chance, I hope you're paying attention to this. If you've lived for 80 years, you've had many, many chances to come to Jesus. When you look at what we do to his planet, when we look at how we treat fellow human beings made in the image of God, the reality is this, is that the case for us going to heaven is far less than the case for us going to hell. And Romans 3 verse 10 to 12 and 23 says, as it is written, he's quoting Isaiah, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. 
Well, let's tackle this thing. And how can God be loving and still send people to hell? Well, the first thing is this. Scriptures never actually say God sends people to hell. Hear me out on this. Is in actual fact, hell was never in God's original plan. Do you remember when God made the world and the beauty of it? He called it paradise. His design for creation was to live in perfect harmony with the Creator. And then what happened? Man sinned. And sin entered the world. And God's original plan, which was not for hell, but for eternal relationship with humanity, was broken. And this is what we see in John 3, 16 to 18. It says, For God so loved the world, notice that, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is what I want to focus on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What is John saying here? He's saying that the world stood condemned already in sin. Already. God sending Jesus Christ was for rescuing, not for condemning. In other words, God sent Christ as a means of salvation, not condemnation. Do you understand that? God's heart is positive towards the world. And in the coming of Jesus, we'll see he presents a choice, but we'll get there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, says that this is good. And is pleasing the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. That's what the truth is. The man Christ Jesus, and this is it, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. The cross is sufficient to pay for the sin of the entire world. One payment for sin with a capital S. And God's desire in sending Jesus is he's offering out salvation to the world, which was already under condemnation. So Peter, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord, listen to this, is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness in, this, in, this, in terms of Jesus coming back again. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, the very fact that Jesus is taking such a long time to come back is he's giving opportunity for people to repent. That's what Paul says. Like Joe said the other day in one of his sermons. He said, I'm so grateful. How old are you, Joe? That God didn't come 28 years ago because Joe had the opportunity of finding Christ. Salvation. And even Jesus' slowness in coming is a sign of saying there's opportunity to repent. Now, this is important. People choose 
to go there, to hell. How can I say that? Well, firstly, it is because God's judgment is not based on fate. It's not based on some sort of unfair pre-programmed destination. In other words, Scripture says, listen to me now, if you, if you can understand this, you've done well, is that our rebellion against God is willful. Our rebellion against God and our sin, it's by our own will. And when we get judged, our will will be this. That either we responded to the God of heaven or we didn't. Our judgment is a basis of our will before God and our decision to rebel against his supreme divine authority. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, there are two things we reject when a person goes to hell. The first is, there is a willful obedience to not obey God, to continue on in your own direction, although there is evidence of God in the universe, you suppress it, you continue going on in your own way and doing your own thing, and you refuse to bow the knee to the Creator. That's the first thing. But the second is to reject the gospel is when God is offering out this free gift to the world through Jesus Christ, by rejecting that, what it results in is a rejection of salvation. Is that our judgment falls on our willfulness to disobey God. We will be without excuse. So C.S. Lewis says there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are, only, there are those that say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. In other words, we have a, a choice to submit to the king of heaven, or he says, well, your will be done. So the question is this. What about those people who never, ever, ever get to hear about Jesus? First of all, are you with me so far? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> what about the person, have you ever asked this question in, give me a random place? Timbuktu, well done. Who has never heard about Jesus? What happens to them? They've never had an opportunity to receive the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. If nobody has told them, do they go to hell? Isn't that unfair? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked that question? Are you still awake? You're with me. What does that mean? Well, it's very important well, we'll get there. I want to just put this, I was blown by the statistic. Do you know that, the mod, that that's not the case anymore in the modern situation? Do you know that one in every eight people in this planet, on this planet, are actively living out their Christian faith? One in eight. One in eight. That's, I can't remember what that, uh, Rolf de Winter, they do a whole bunch of missionary analyses and statistics. 
One in eight people globally are active in their faith. And where the third world was the mission field. Now the, the third world, I put in inverted commas, is sending missionaries out. The whole world is hearing about Jesus. But what about in the past? Well, can I point out that each person needs to respond to the measure of light they have been given. And Paul says, God's premise for judgment is very clear. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress, that's it, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What is Paul saying? He's saying, guys, there is no excuse of anybody to say there is no God. Because if you look at creation, that's what we said in week one, the existence of God, and week two, is no matter how, where you stand, creation proclaims, even science says, there had to be a start to all of this. There is such a thing as God. There is such a thing as a creator. And if you look at this world, its complexity and its glorious diversity and its breadth, you look at the universe, there are two things you realize. You realize this God is all-powerful and this God is eternal. He had to be before what he made and he had to be all-powerful to make it. Amen? And if you look at creation, this God demands authority over our lives. The greatest sin of humanity is to say, I have no authority over my life. I'm my own master. I'm my own fate. When creation tells you, you were made by a God mightier and more powerful than what any human being could ever be. And what happens is this light of creation, of you looking at the complexity of it and diversity, what it should do is stir in you this desire to know who made this all and who put you here. But instead of us as human beings being so clever, what Scripture says is instead of that sparking in us a desire to know this Creator, this light given to humanity to say there is something more and greater than yourself, and we are called to know Him and seek Him and submit to Him, even show thanksgiving for being here because He put us here, what happens is this, is we suppress Him, we, we look to pleasure, we craft things in our own image so that we don't have an external authority to tell us how we should live. That is sin, my friend, is to live as if you are God. And you might say, what about all the religions that try to find their way to God? Let me tell you, religion is mere parachute. It's a mere parachute. Most religion, any religion, even dead Christianity, it's just to do enough duty so that I can be safe for the afterlife. That's not what I'm talking about here. Jehovah's Witnesses will say something, Muslims will say something, Hindus something, even legalistic dead Christianity will say something. I am not talking today. You need to listen to me now. This is the most important thing you need to hear. We need to stop looking at life as a mere dabbling with God. What we do is we just want a little parachute that will flop out when we're in trouble or when we're going on our deathbed. We do just enough so that we can do our own thing for the rest of life. Let me tell you what creation says is that we are under God and He owns us. And Christianity has lost that. Why? Because we live in this way of a false religion which says, I just have to do a little bit so that I can make sure that I'll get to where I want to be. Don't take my whole life. Don't put your hand on any area of my life. I'll give you just enough of my duty so I can get on with my own life. That is the sin that is facing mankind. And I want to say to you today, if you have not come to the reality that you are going to face an immortal God 
who owns you, who made you, whose very breath is there because he said it is so, you are going to find yourself in trouble, my friends. And that is why what I'm talking about here is this response to the light of creation is not some mere dead religion, some duty of I come to church or I go to mosque or I go to some temple. No, it is this desire of understanding I'm called to know God. That my desire in my life is not to go just to do enough so that I can avoid judgment. My desire is to know Him. That my entire life is caught up with this personal, mighty, divine, eternal God. And all of my life is to seek Him and to know Him and to become like Him, to experience the power of this Creator. And so for, let me tell you now, dead religion will never satisfy Muslims in their hundreds are coming to revelations, divine revelations of Jesus Christ because their religion doesn't satisfy. Hindus are coming to divine revelations of Jesus because it doesn't satisfy. Christians are leaving dead churches because dead religion doesn't satisfy. What they want is God. Is that what you want, my friend? And you will find him if you are wanting to see him. But if you're wanting him to fit your accommodated mold of just kind of fitting into your life, my nice little neat life, I, he has no other dibs on my rest of my life. He is not my final authority, I am. He fits into my life. That is sin, my friend. It is the, it is the toxic poison that is killing true Christian faith and keeps people in bondage for their entire lives with the lie that if I just do enough, I'll be okay. But don't take my whole life. Don't come in, don't come in Lord, and, and, and have dibs on. Don't be my final authority. We don't want to know God. We want to just be safe. That is the sin, my friend. That is the sin. In your life, how much do you want to know God? Because let me tell you, He is saying every clue in nature, His evidence throughout the world is saying He exists, and you've been made for Him. You've been made for him. He has not been made for you. And you'll read story after story of people who want to know God. Desperate fasting in prison cells saying, God, I haven't found you in this religion or that religion. Would you show me who you are? Let me tell you, God shows up. I met a friend called Rashida in Cape Town, and as soon as I saw her name, we were at church, I said, Rashida, you weren't born a Christian, were you? Born a Christian, put it that way. Christian family. No. She was a Muslim. Do you know her story? Can I say to you today, this is somebody that I'm talking about. She was born into a Muslim family, couldn't find God. She met the Dalai Lama in India. She couldn't find God. She went to Central America to live with the Indians in a jungle to try and find God. She couldn't find She found him in Jesus Christ. And this is the picture I'm talking about. This lady was desperate to know God. Not some stupid religion. And she found him in Jesus Christ. If you are here today as a safety net, can I say to you, my friend, you will never discover the God who is calling you into communion with him. But if you're here, you want to know him. You want to know him. You want to live for him. You want your life to be shaped and formed by the day you're going to meet him my friend you're in the right place 
Jesus said, Anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. And the world is in desperate hunger without even knowing it. Paul says in Acts 17, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of parents in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps, notice that perhaps, feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. So what can we say today? There's evidence for the existence of the afterlife. There's evidence for the existence of heaven and hell. And my friend, this is what I want to talk to you about today, is there's a universal call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of that last amazing Acts chapter 17, these people have never heard the gospel in their life before. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I've taken some time this morning but there is a universal command that has gone out to the world. Doesn't matter how you got here this morning, doesn't matter where you are in your life, the command is this, to turn away from self-centeredness called sin and to turn to the God who made you through his appointed Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not games. This is not something you talk about over a cup of coffee. This is not something we sit in our armchairs or in our lounges and we hypothesize over God. Does God exist? Let me tell you now, friends, there is a warning that has gone out to the world that says judgment is coming. And the only thing that separates the sheep from the goats, I didn't put it up there, the only thing that separates those that are going to go into eternal life and those who are not, is what you have done in response to the revelation God has given you. And forget about all the questions about those outside. The revelation for you this morning is, will you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That is the revelation you must respond to will you say my life God is not for me it is for you and repentance is saying I have lived my life only for me no no I die to that now I confess my sin and disobedience of not living it for you would you do that this morning and Christians might I just point out you know what this has struck me I've had to repent because I have seen my life as my own when it belongs to God. And today I want to ask you, how much of your life is caught up with a desire to please the one who made you? How much? How much? You are not your own. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, Scripture says. You belong to Jesus. So, I want to help anybody who wants to come to him this morning. Let's close our eyes and pray.
If that's you this morning, I want to help you talk to the Lord. You know, if I had to ask you, if I had to ask you today, where are you going to go when you die? If you cannot confidently say heaven. Well, let me put it another way. If I asked you, why should God let you into heaven today? What would you say? If you're not certain, then you know you're not ready. I want to help you start your journey of faith. And this is not done lightly. Please, if if your idea is just to say it flippantly, then go and carry on with what you want to do. This is not for you, okay? But this is somebody who understands that they're going to meet God. They're going to meet God and how they live now and where they're at with Him matters. So that's you. Would you pray with me? I want to help you talk to Jesus. Would you say this to me? Say, Jesus, you know where I've been. You know what I've done. You know my sin. I'm asking you to please forgive me. I believe your death on the cross was for me. I need your blood to wash me clean. Jesus, I want to live for you. Show me how to do that. Fill me with your spirit. I want to be ready for you. Just pause there. If that's you, just stay where you are, in your heart, in your mind. I want to pray for the rest of us here this morning. Father, we belong to our Creator. We belong to you, Lord. We're not our own. We don't get to pick and choose in this life what we do. And I pray you'd forgive me, Lord. I pray you forgive us as a church for living so arrogantly before you. Lord, it is sheer arrogance to think my life is a mere accommodation of God. When, Lord, your entire purpose is to fashion us into the image of your Son. That is where eternal life is. It's an awareness of belonging to our Father in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us today see life through new eyes. That we would see that this world, oh man, it's only the foyer. The great hall of eternity is coming. And Lord, we want a glorious entrance as your people. We want the well done, good and faithful servant. We want to live as if that mattered more than now. Father, stir us, we pray. Stir us. Some of us have grown tired. Lord, might we be re-energized with this purpose of seeing we were born for more than this. Lord, for some of us whose death is knocking at a closer door, I pray that, Lord, these years to come would be even better than all the years prior. Lord, that you'd restore the years even the locusts have eaten for some of us. Lord, when there's breath in our body right now, I pray you would infuse, instill new life and purpose for this time, for what's left, for glory, we pray. 
We pray for us young guys, younger guys, we see the long stretch of life before us. Teach us perseverance. Teach us steadfastness. Teach us faithfulness. Teach us an enduring love for our Savior. Might this debt of love be poured out through obedient service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we pray even for our children in this church. Lord, might they be raised with an understanding of eternity of knowing I was born for more than this. Might salvation drip from our mouths, be presented in our hearts, in our minds, with our hands, because we understand what's at stake, Lord, that this world needs Jesus Christ. We're so much more than a parachute for the world. No, no, Lord, we're offering out eternal life. Oh, God, we thank you for these things today. We praise you that you're the God, not of just yesterday and today, but for eternity. We praise you this morning. We love you this morning. In your mighty name, amen.